Please join with me in prayer. Father, I do pray that as we read uh, earlier in the Confession of Faith as to um, what, um, how to listen to the Word of God and give attention to it uh, such that it benefits our souls, I pray that uh, you would help us to uh, have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey your Holy Word. Help me as I proclaim it, um, and help me to lift up Jesus as I do. I ask in His name, Amen. All right, we are starting a new sermon series this morning. Uh, is this on? Is this? Can you hear me okay? All right, good. Um, before I announce the sermon series, it might be fun to engage in a short exercise of Bible trivia, and it will be short. Help us make sure we're all awake. How many letters to the Ephesian church do we have in the New Testament? Fix an answer in your mind. You can tell me at the back door after the service if you got the answer right. So, first of all, we have Paul's letter to the the Ephesians. Easy peasy, we all know that. We also have Jesus' letter to the Ephesians. That was recorded in the book of Revelation. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll read it real quickly because it will become important in this sermon. So Jesus wrote to um, the Ephesians, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have, yet this you have, you hate the, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So that's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The book of Revelation, in my conviction, uh, was written in A.D. 68 or 69. And so, with the book of Ephesians and this short letter within the book of Revelation, that makes two letters that were written to the Ephesian uh, Christians. But there's a third letter that was written to the Ephesians. This one's a bit tricky. It's 1 Timothy. So, of course, um, 1 Timothy was written to Timothy but it was meant for Timothy to read it to the Ephesian congregation. How do I know that? Well, the benediction in the very last verse of 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verse 21, the benediction is written in the plural. Uh, God's not, or Paul's not simply saying to Timothy, Timothy, God's grace be with you. It's written in the plural. It literally reads, Grace be with you all, or as we would say in Georgia, 
Grace be with y'all. Paul loved the church in Ephesus. He planted the church in Ephesus in in the year A.D. 54. And he spent over two years there, maybe nearly three years. When he began his ministry in Ephesus, he did what he uh, was his custom in every new city that he came to. He'd go speak in the local synagogue until the Jews got so angry at him that they would run him out, out of town. And that took about three weeks, typically. But this time he received such an encouraging reception that he was allowed to speak for three months before they refused to hear him any longer and kicked him out of the synagogue. After that, Paul began to go daily to the hall of Tyrannus. He spoke there every day for over two years. And large crowds came to hear him every day. In fact, there were great numbers of people who came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was nothing less than a a tremendous revival that broke out in the city of Ephesus. But it wasn't limited to Ephesus. Ephesus was a major trading center in the ancient Near East. And so these new converts who were coming and hearing Paul uh, talk about the gospel and were were converted, and then they continued to listen to him. They joined the congregation, but they didn't stay in Ephesus because they were coming into town to trade. They were going back out into the the other cities uh, in Asia Minor. And they took the gospel with them. Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that tells about this revival in Ephesus, says, Paul continued for two years so that all the the residents of Asia... And that's not China and and India. This is talking about Asia Minor. Uh, All the, uh, the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it. Here is Paul. He's teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. It would hold great crowds. And great crowds were coming to hear him. They were converted. They were going back to their homes. They were traveling to other cities uh, as they were doing their trade and their commerce, and they were telling everybody about Jesus so that the Bible can truthfully say that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is an amazing work of God's Spirit. The purpose of First Timothy was not just to encourage Timothy and tell him how to be a faithful minister. It was also Paul's letter to his beloved church in Ephesus to instruct them how they ought to behave as members of God's precious church. In fact, the theme of 1 Timothy is found smack dab in the middle of the book of 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, here's the purpose of 1 Timothy. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's also writing to the congregation and telling them how they ought to behave in the congregation as they are members of God's church. And so Paul continues to speak across the ages. He speaks to us. 
And He is telling us through 1 Timothy how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. This is the reason why I chose the book of 1 Timothy. There's so much confusion about what the church ought to to be like or how we ought to behave within the church. Many churches have structured themselves to be more like businesses to attract new clients. Other churches function more like social clubs to provide for the social needs of the membership. And still others are driven more by tradition than by biblical guidelines. 1 Timothy is going to help us evaluate our own ministry to see how closely we are following biblical norms. And I, I will be completely honest with you. I fully anticipate that Paul's letter to Timothy will make me and the session squirm at times as we recognize areas where God's Word is going to correct us. I imagine there will be times in 1 Timothy where we all might be a bit uncomfortable. You know, 1 Timothy has become about as popular as Ecclesiastes, which is to say it's not a very popular book for preachers to preach from. It touches on many subjects that are considered taboo in our culture. It speaks very directly to the importance of personal godliness. It speaks to the character traits of one who is qualified to be a leader in God's church. It also speaks to the role of women in the church. It speaks to the subject of church discipline and to the responsibility of the membership of the church to submit to the leadership of the church. So... It's got a few barbs in it that we'll come to as we march our way through 1 Timothy. May we be willing to submit fully, quickly, and joyfully to God's Word. Basically, what I'm saying is 1 Timothy opens a can of worms and spills them out into the congregation, but it's not a can of worms. It's a can of God's blessings in all honesty. Because if we are obeying God's Word, it will redound back to us as blessing, even if it might be difficult at the time. So 1 Timothy can be for us an exercise in careful listening to God's Word and uh, an exercise in our willingness to submit to it. It's going to be challenging to me as I preach through it, I can tell you that. I am not very forceful in my preaching. I like to encourage and refresh you in my preaching. But Paul is bold in 1 Timothy. He is exhorting and he is admonishing. So if I'm to be faithful in preaching 1 Timothy, I'll need to exhort and to admonish. Even if my boldness feels more like a feather duster as opposed to Paul's sledgehammer. That being said... I firmly believe that the foundation for Westminster's future faithfulness and healthiness and happiness in the body of Christ um, will be more sturdy. Our, Our healthiness and our happiness will be more sturdy and more robust if we eagerly embrace the teachings of 1 Timothy. 
One of the things that makes Westminster stand out against the other churches in our community is our commitment to ask if it's biblical before we ask if it's practical. In the long run, being committed to the Scriptures is more practical. Since the letter is addressed to Timothy, it behooves us to know a little bit more about him. In verse 2, Paul referred to him as my true child in the faith. Paul first met Timothy 15 years earlier when Paul came to Lystra to preach the gospel. While he was in Lystra, um, the Jews became so enraged at his preaching that they stoned him and dragged him outside the city supposing he was dead. And Timothy was about 19 or 20 at the time, a young man. When Paul returned to Lystra a year later, Timothy... um, Timothy had grown as a Christian. He'd presumably become a Christian the year prior. And his growth as a Christian uh, apparently greatly impressed Paul so that Paul took uh, Timothy with him on the rest of his second missionary journey. Their relationship became very close. I sometimes think of my relationship with Dr. Krabendam in the same vein, uh, where Dr. K has has kept... uh, kept in touch with me and has continued to bring me under his wing, keeps trying to take me to Uganda every year. He he asks me if I'm uh, at a spot where I can go with him. And uh, I think he still views me as a young man, even though I'm now uh, 50 years old, because he met me when I was a college student. And so I think this was some of the way that uh, Paul viewed Timothy. As you read Paul's letters, you'll notice that Timothy was at his side for most of the letters that were written, or Timothy was being sent on one of Paul's missionary errands uh, in the letters that Paul, that where Timothy is not physically with Paul. In Philippians chapter two, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, um, Paul wrote of Timothy, "I have no one like him." who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. You can just hear Paul's affection for Timothy. Because Timothy was young. Like I said, he always, I think, viewed Timothy as a young man. Also, um... I think Paul continued to view him as a young man because he was timid. By the time that Paul wrote uh, 1 Timothy to Timothy, Timothy was about 35 years old, um, the scholars tell us. And even though he's 35, Paul sees him as young. I think part part of it, as I just mentioned, is because of his timidity. Timothy was not bold. He was probably a bit uh, soft-spoken. And so Paul had to remind Timothy in uh, his second letter to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul also had to write a note to the Corinthians to make sure that they were not too rough on Timothy 
when Timothy arrived to do Paul's bidding. He said to the Corinthians, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy was a great encouragement to me as a young pastor. Um, even before I became a pastor, when I was dis- trying to discern my call to the ministry, the men who discipled me were very bold. You've met Dr. Krabendam, very bold. Terry Johnson, I did an internship under him, very, very bold. Mike Chastain, the man who uh, let me live in his basement and, and uh, taught me Greek and taught me theology and discipled me. He was more bold than both of them put together. He'd say to me, you want to be useful for the Lord today? I said, yeah. He said, go evangelize this, uh, this apartment complex. I'll go with you to the first apartment. I'll teach you how to do it, and then you're on your own. And um, he, he was, uh, I could go on story after story, very bold. And so me not being bold being discipled and uh, trained in the faith by these very bold men, I began to question my call to the ministry. But then I would read Timothy and say, Timothy was timid. And that would give me a lot of encouragement. Um, But Timothy was, in his timidity, he was also effective. Um, So I thought, Oh, maybe God can use me to be effective as well. Paul was sending Timothy into a very tough situation in Ephesus. Paul had been away from Ephesus for five years. And during his five-year absence, very destructive forces had moved, moved in to harm the church. But the destructive, destructiveness was not coming from outside the church. It was rather coming from within. The last time Paul saw the Ephesian elders, uh, as, his, as he was on his way to Jerusalem, he said to the Ephesian elders, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And sure enough, Paul had heard from the church in Ephesus that certain elders in the church had gained a grip on the leadership and were leading the congregation astray. I imagine Paul knew exactly who those leaders, those elders were, even though he doesn't call them out by name. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So he mentioned certain persons, but I'm sure he knew exactly who those certain persons were. What were these certain persons or these certain elders teaching? Well, they were obsessed with myths and endless genealogies. They were not content with the glorious message that God loves sinners. They weren't content teaching people that Jesus Christ took on human flesh and came here to our, to our world to die in the place of sinners. They had to go and they had to find this deeper meaning. They were searching through um, myths and genealogies, trying to unlock the Bible and find these, these, uh, these coded messages within the genealogies. They were obsessed with these things. They were treating the Bible like a magician's hat, 
to try and wow the congregation with their fanciful speculations. Not only were they mishandling the Bible, they were also distorting the truth. Paul says at the end of verse 4 that they're, as they were promoting speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 3 says they were teaching a different doctrine. They were de-emphasizing the important issues of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith in order to bring forward to the fore their speculations to wow people rather than in humility teaching them about the Lord Jesus. You know, this thing kind of thing has always been a problem. This is how the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons started. They would take these obscure verses, then they would twist them to change the meaning. And as they did that, they were telling everybody far and wide about their novel, new discovery that no one had ever seen before. And typically, they did their recruiting not from outside the church, but from within the church, causing divisions, causing the gospel to be de-emphasized. You know, many evangelical discussions about the end times can fall into this same kind of pattern. If Christians understood the gospel half as well as they understood all the end times theories, the church would be in a much better shape. It amazes me. Everybody in the church knows all the different end-time theories. Even non-Christians who have never been in church know the the different end-time theories. But who knows the gospel? By God's grace, we hope never to teach you any novel doctrines. We aim to stay closely tethered to the Reformed Orthodox theology that has been recognized by the church through the ages. We aim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You can boil down every sermon I have preached here for the past 12 years and any sermons I hope to preach in the future. And I hope if you boil it and distill it down, you'll see Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is a sobering reality that the Ephesian congregation was so easily deserted, uh, diverted from the gospel toward unsound doctrine. And history teaches us that gospel-centered churches, even whole denominations, can quickly turn against the gospel. We have our General Assembly this week. Jim Eggert and Jimbo and myself will uh, be there. Um, issues that cause our session uh, concern will be before us this year. Pr- please pray for us that our denomination will remain strong in our commitment to sound doctrine. Now, I want to be clear in saying that our, our denomination is not in danger of going off the rails and giving up our faith, but there are some issues that are concerning and as the pastors talk and everybody's been talking ahead of the General Assembly, these they may be small issues, but they start to seem big. You know, um, what's worse than a, uh, a sewing circle for spreading gossip? 
1,500 pastors sitting in a, in a business meet, a meeting all week. Um, yeah, we, the, 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 the rumors fly. And, uh, that's as destructive as the unsound teaching. Because it builds distrust. So pray for us this week at, as we, uh, are, as our denomination is meeting up in Atlanta. Uh, what the one of the men who discipled me uh, used to tell me, the PCA is a mess. PCA, uh, Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination. PCA is a mess, but it's one of the best messes going. That's <laughs> what he would always say, and I think that's true. We 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 have the strong theology, but there's always this voices out there saying, go in this direction or go in that direction. And if we were to go in either of those directions, we'd take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be wise in how we address those who are trying to push us in different directions. Timothy went to Ephesus, and in spite of his timidity, he was able to ward off those who were teaching different doctrines. We know that for a fact. In fact, the church in Ephesus became an, a champion for the truth. But as they did that, they fell back in other areas. In becoming warriors for the truth, they became hardened and jaded toward outsiders. They lost their missionary vigor and zeal. And they became insulated, ingrown. How do I know that? Well, I already read to you Jesus' letter to the um, to the Ephesians, and I'm right at um, closing. But I want you to listen to this letter in Revelation written to the Ephesians, written by Jesus Himself, in light of what I've been saying. Whereas, when Paul sent Timothy, they were in danger of going off and following different doctrines. Timothy devoted himself to that congregation, devoted himself to guarding the truth, and that, that church in Ephesus became a champion for truth. But what you'll hear is they lost that love that they had, that missionary zeal and vigor because they became so concerned about um, guarding off bad teaching. So again, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of... Oh, and by the way, this is three or four years after Timothy got there. So um, the change was, was rather rapid. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. See, Timothy did a good job. He was effective. And he, Jesus goes on, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have in your favor. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat 
of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Being committed to God's truth while being loving toward those who oppose God's truth can be difficult. We cannot settle for standing for God's truth. We must love our enemies who oppose God's truth. We cannot be a holy huddle that encircles truth to protect it. We must lovingly pursue unbelievers with God's truth. Or as Charles Spurgeon says, you don't need to protect a lion. You let the lion out and let it protect itself. With God's truth, we've got to let the truth out and proclaim it to our neighbors, to our friends, to our community, because we love the least and the lost. We can't be a holy huddle. Otherwise, we fall into the trap that the Ephesians fell into in guarding the truth so dearly. They lost their missionary zeal. They went from being the leading missionary church where the whole um, area of Asia Minor was hearing the gospel to becoming very unloving toward those who are outside. We must recognize how difficult it is to hang on to the truth while seeing the temptation to protect it too rigidly. We need to remember that we are still sinners and still have a propensity ourselves to go off the rails. The Ephesian church, for three years, heard from the Apostle Paul himself. They got the fire hose of, 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 of Paul's teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, and so quickly they went off the rails. We need to be humble. We need to remember that the truth is a precious deposit that does need our protection, that does need our utmost attention. But at the same time, we must remember that God's truth is not just for us in the holy huddle, but is to be proclaimed boldly and lovingly toward our congregation. Our Lord Jesus Christ came here to earth, laid down His life to purchase for Himself a people. By His grace, May we be a church that stands in His truth and proclaims His gospel to those who have yet to hear it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do ask that we would be valiant for truth while also um, loving toward our neighbors. But Lord, we know we don't have that in ourselves. We are a sinful people. And so we ask that You would pour out Your grace upon us continually. Help us to remember how much Jesus loves us and that He is the Word of God. And in giving over sound doctrine, we are giving over the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never do that. We ask in His name. Amen.